just keep on squeezing a little bit more nectar uh, out of here. So we're going to try to look at it again this morning. Um, this is God's word for us this morning. I'll read verse 10, 11, and 12, although I'll focus our thoughts primarily on verse 12 with a little bit from verse 11 as well. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's, there's no word like your word. It's perfect. It's flawless. It's true. It's beautiful. It's living. And so we would pray that as we look at your word this morning, it would be living and active by the presence of your spirit in our hearts and souls and lives, that you would enliven us to see wonderful things from your holy word. That, and in particular, that we would see Jesus. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we looked primarily at verse 11, in which we looked at the personal outcome of Jesus uh, in the aftermath of his work at the cross, but we also dipped into and looked at some of the outcome of his people, uh, what he accomplished for his people by his successful accomplishment of his work on the cross. I would remind you that Isaiah 52 and 53 is our summer scripture memory passage, and this is a word of prophecy penned some over 700 years before these things actually unfolded, but with perfect accuracy that only the Spirit of God himself can provide to us. We are, we are reading now what Isaiah wrote before it happened, but we're reading it in the aftermath of it happening, and we get to... We get to to, to cherish and to be nourished by what Christ has done for his people through the words describing that here in Isaiah 52 and 53. Last week, we looked at the first benefit or outcome of good for the Lord's people, that when Christ was raised from the dead, that, that certainly is a good outcome for him personally, but, but him being raised from the dead is for the good of his people as well. And the first good that we saw that comes to all who are trusting in Jesus is that sinners are declared righteous in the sight of God. 
look at how he says that just by way of quick review in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In other words, it's again describing he shall live again. He shall come out of the darkness of death and see the light of life. He shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. In other words, by knowledge of him, uh, shall, uh, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, the focus of verse 11, by rear view view, is that now Christ, now in Christ, who is called the righteous one in this passage, and oh, and is he righteous. There is no flaw or defect there in Jesus whatsoever. He obeyed the law of God. He pleased his father perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness in thought, in word, in deed, in emotion. Every aspect of his being uh, it, it resulted in him truly showing himself to be righteous. And yet this righteous one, we're told here, he does an exchange for his people, a, a swap out, an incredible, beautiful swap out. He takes the righteous one, takes the sins of his people, and he bears up under the curse and the condemnation and the penalty of our sins. And in taking upon himself our sins, and in taking upon himself the punishment of our sins, he exchanges that uh, with his righteousness. So that Christ's righteousness is credited to his believing people so that we are reckoned or accounted as righteous before God. Verse 11 last week taught us that the saving work of God in Christ is incredible. That Christ's righteousness is gifted to us so that now when we live in relationship with God, we do so on the basis of, we do so on the grounds of the righteousness of Christ. And what that does is that establishes us in a permanent relationship with God through Christ by his spirit. In other words, if, if we just began the Christian life receiving a mere pardon from Jesus, and I don't mean mere pardon, meaning that that is like nothing, it's, it's beautiful, but we got more than a pardon. If we began the Christian life with just forgiveness, then, then from that point on, we would be left to embark upon a journey, a process of earning or maintaining a relationship with God in which the status of that relationship would ebb and flow, would go up and down, would bounce back and forth, rooted in or grounded in our actual acts of righteousness, which will always be incomplete and insufficient. But Jesus never uh, is uh, 
ebbing and flowing or up and in and down and, and going and back and forth and with us in terms of the permanency of our relationship with him. The, the Christian life uh, uh, doesn't start with a quest to, for us to work up enough righteousness so that we might safely get home. No, it starts with us being credited with the very record of Christ's righteousness that permanently roots us in a relationship with the Lord as permanent of a relationship with, the, with God as Christ has with his Father in heaven. So last week we said there's a huge change of status. Any and all sinners who turn and trust in Jesus are given an instant and yet permanent change of status. We are now reckoned as righteous in the sight of God. We don't always consistently play out that righteousness in the actual processes and uh, acts and thoughts and emotions of our, of our lives. And that really brings us to then two more outcomes that Christ purchases for his people that I think verse 12 focuses in, in on. And the two things, if you want to jot these down by way of this bulletin insert there, we... The suffering servant provides strength for his people. And the suffering servant offers intercession for his people. So we begin the Christian life with a record of righteousness in the sight of God. And, and yet that's not the only thing that we begin with. That's not the only thing that we've been provided those whom God justifies so that we are brought into relationship with God are also provided strength and are also provided the promise of ongoing intercessory prayer. Uh, let's look at those one at a time. In particular, look at the first half of verse 12, where it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and then the second line, there's kind of a poetical parallelism going on there. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So you see the, the, the play back and forth there. We're talking about a division of a portion, the first line, and then um, also a dividing of the spoil. And that, that interplays with uh, the first line, the many, but also plays interacts with the second line there, the strong. So let's, let's unpack that. First of all, it, we're, we're describing something about uh, uh, a portion of, of Christ being divided and shared with the many. We're talking about uh, uh, the spoils of Christ being divided and shared with the strong. The first thing that strikes me is I'm struck by the, the, the imagery of language of portion and spoils. Um, that, that's the imagery of a victor who comes away from his victory with the spoils from the vanquished foe. 
Now, where did Christ defeat this vanquished foe? Well, ironically, at the cross. You say, no, I, I, I thought that's where Christ got defeated at the cross. Nope. Christ didn't get defeated at the cross. Christ won the victory at the cross. I, I know it's a strange irony. I, I, I know we wouldn't draw this up as a military game plan. Here's how we're going to win. We're going to go and we're going to allow ourselves to die. Uh, no, no military strategist would draw that up that way. No, we're going to win by going and killing, not by dying. The beautiful irony of the cross is that the cross is actually depicted from a biblical perspective as a place of great military victory. The mighty king, reigning from his throne, vanquishes his, his foes from the cross. And what Jesus acquires in his victory at the cross... He shares the spoils of that victory with his people. That's described as the many. That's described as the strong. We're going to come back to that notion of strong because that's what we're really trying to make sense of and unpack here in a second, how he gives strength to his people. But what I want us to see for the moment, just make sure we, we understand the full import of that, his defeat was not a loss. His death, at least, was not a loss. His death was, in fact, a, a victory. Even earlier in, uh, uh, in our passage, going back to uh, verse 13 of, of chapter 52, which started this unit here. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Remember what, what we said about that? When we began that is wisely there really implies the notion of successfully that that my servant shall be successful my servant shall act wisely he shall be high and he shall be lifted up and he shall be exalted in other words even as he is high and lifted up he is exalted as king and victor or just earlier in chapter 52, in verse 7, he says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The cross, ironically, is a demonstration of the superior greatness and, uh, and majestic rule of Jesus as our victorious reigning king. He has defeated every last enemy at the cross. And then he has drained the enemy of all of the enemy's provisions, and, and he's taken those spoils of war, if you would, and he's shared those with his people. All who are accounted as righteous in the sight of God now share in the spoils 
of war that were purchased, that were acquired by the victory of Jesus from the cross. And now in this case, in particular, we're looking at one spoil that now Jesus shares with his people. And yet how Isaiah says it is that Jesus gives his spoils to the strong. Hmm. How should we take that? Should we say, so is Isaiah telling us that Jesus actually withholds the spoils from weaklings? And weaklings don't get to share in the spoils of Jesus' victory until they figure out how to be strong. Nah. Uh, Isaiah is not advising us that we better get our act together and be strong in and of ourselves. No, I, I, Isaiah is not advising us, he's announcing to us that, that, that Jesus takes his spoils and he shares them with us. And in this context, the, the thing that he explicitly shares with us is his strength. So that we who are weak become what? Where'd you get that strength at? Did you do that your own self? Did you build that? Did you pull yourself by your own uh, strong bootstraps and make yourself strong? Uh, 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 that's not what the scripture teaches us at all. The suffering servant's success is that what appears to be abject weakness, what appears to be uh, utter defeat for him actually turned out to be the clearest, ultimate, final display of his strength and of his victory. And guess what he shares with his people? His strength and his victory. What our strong victor shares is his strength and his victory. He shares that not with those who are natively strong or natively victorious. We, we do not promote a gospel that says, Jesus loves beautiful people. And then we got to figure out a way to fabricate and fool each other that we're somehow natively beautiful people. We do not preach a gospel that says, no. Now, Jesus doesn't like wimpy, weak people. He only likes the, the Green Beret strong type, special forces. And then we somehow have to fool each other to pretend like we've been um, uh, called into special forces, that we're strong and Green Beret-ish and... All along, we know that spiritually, we are neither beautiful nor strong. Spiritually, we are actually ugly and weak. They said, boy, that's kind of dour. I mean, why did Joe wake up in a bad mood this morning? He just, he just called us ugly and weak. Why did I do that? Why? Because there is an infinite measure of hope and strength and love for those who see themselves as God sees us, and that is ugly and weak, before, because he gives joy 
and peace and hope and strength and beauty to those who turn to him for he shares his beauty his strength his hope his joy with his weak and his ugly people Again, you, it's easy to take offense, but you see, you see how when Paul says the gospel is actually offensive because the gospel says a thing or two about us, even as it says a thing or two about Jesus. Like, I, I'm not going to sit here and talk, be talked to like this. He just called me ugly. Well, you know, it wouldn't be the first time I just dug myself in a deeper grave. I said, well, you're uglier than you think, you know, but... Uh, I, but uh, And I know what you're thinking. You're, you're, you're in retaliation mode. You were like, well, you ain't that so hot after all. That's the point. The point that for any of us to think that we're something, that, that we're mighty and we're beautiful and, and we've natively done this our own selves, uh, is to be spiritually delusional. Jesus does not share the spoils of victory with those who think themselves to be strong and victorious. No, he shares the spoils of his victory with those who see themselves accurately as weak and defeated and deflated. Do you feel weary? Do you feel burdened? Do you feel guilty? Do you feel as though you can't spiritually put another foot in front of yourself and make progress? Well, here's the good news of the gospel. If you're feeling that way natively, then Jesus offers the spoils of his victory to those who feel their weakness, who feel their defeatedness, who feel their burdenness. He really doesn't have much to offer for those who are strong and beautiful and fat and happy in and of themselves. He only does good for sinners. For he has victoriously defeated our sin and bore up under the curse of our uh, sin. So he gives strength. Strength? Strength for what? Well, I don't know. What do you need? Do you want to resist temptation? Yeah, but I don't think I got the strength that I need to resist temptation. That's what I'm talking about. You're right. You don't natively have the strength in and of yourself to resist temptation. Temptation will whoop you every time, but you're not left to fend for yourself. We've been given strength from Jesus. He has brought us into right relationship with God. He has credited to us a righteousness, and, and now he is earnest and serious about giving us strength for this day so that we might resist temptation. What about suffering? You don't understand the agony that I go through in life, and it weakens me. It makes me feel weak and flimsy. Jesus provides strength to his believing people to endure suffering. He doesn't always instantly remove the suffering, but he never abandons us in that suffering. He walks with us, and he shares the spoils of his victory with us 
strength. What about so that I could get my life together and respond in obedience? I don't think I have the goods to, to really earnestly obey Jesus. You're right, you don't. But, but, but it's been shared with you. The spoils of victory have been given to you. You are now made strong in Jesus that we might begin a new trajectory of walking obediently. What about works of service? I don't think I have the ability to do that. You've been given the spoils of Jesus' victory to perform works of service. Something that Carl mentioned in his prayer, he preached on it a couple weeks ago about we are called to be salt and light. You're like kidding me, how can I be salt and light? I, I, I don't think I'm very natively salty or very lighty. Is that a word? Well, you're right. We have in and of ourselves no taste and we're not very bright. Uh, and, and yet that's not the final answer here for Christ's believing people. He gives us saltiness. He gives us the brightness of his very presence. He is the light of the world. And the only way that we can reflect that light is to live in the brightness of his own strength that he provides for us. See, see his grace provides these things for us. His spirit indwelling us provides these things for us. And, and Jesus who indwells our hearts through faith gives to us the very presence of himself so that we have strength or the, some of the language of the New Testament in, Galatia, in Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It just like you talk about a beautiful redundancy there be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might a triple play there on strength that's available to us because of jesus sharing the spoils of his victory with his people he gives strength to his people second timothy chapter 2 says be strengthened by the grace that is in christ jesus no matter how deeply sin tries to assault us, no matter how deeply temptation tries to, uh, to come upon us, no matter how deeply we feel the hurt and pain of suffering, we are not defined by our sinful struggles. We are not defined by our sufferings. We are defined by the strength that Jesus shares with us as his believing people. Or the famous one. Everybody knows this one. Philippians 4. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I told you you knew it. This is not us flexing our own muscles, but this is saying, hey, when Jesus flexes, guess what? He shares that, that, that muscle, that strength, that ability with us. He gives us his strength. Or how Paul would describe that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul prays, Lord, take this, this thorn of the flesh, this messenger of Satan away from me. And, and the Lord says, no, we're just, we're just going to leave it. I kind of luck it right there. Well, I don't. That's why I'm asking you to get rid of it for me. No. Because there's a, there's a bigger dynamic in play here. I'm going to leave it there, not because I'm mean or harsh. I'm going to leave it there because I want you to realize that I have shared the spoils of my victory with you. I've given you strength. And he says, 
the, the, Paul says he realized that, that God's grace was sufficient for him. For, he says, for my power was made perfect in my weakness. Again, interesting, ironic play on words. My power is made perfect when I'm weak. Huh? Well, he goes on to explain. For when I am weak, as it turns out, that's when I'm actually the strongest. Because what he means in that context is when I realize that I'm at the end of myself, that in fact, I have been given more than I can handle. <laughs> when I've been given more than I can handle, I've not been given more than the Lord's strength can aid me and assist me in handling. He gives strength to his believing people. But there's a second one, and this one's going to go quicker because you all took way too much time on that first point, <laughs> is the suffering servant provides or offers intercession for his people. It says there at the second part of verse 12, and yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. He not only shares the spoil of strength with his people, uh, but what, what's, what's Jesus up to now? What's he been doing uh, lately? Well, we looked at last week or the week before the, his own personal successful outcome. Guess what? He's no longer dead. He's no longer in the grave. He's alive. He has risen. And, and, and as we read elsewhere in scriptures, he's actually right there at the Father's right hand. He is seated which means not he's taken a nap, but that he's rest from his work. His work is accomplished. And yet on the other hand, as he's sitting there next to his father, he is doing the ongoing work of interceding for his people. Now, I think it's important to maybe clarify what we mean or don't mean by Christ's ongoing intercession for his people. The function of Christ's present intercession is not to somehow complete what he didn't get finished at the cross. Like, if I would have just hung there a little bit longer, I could have wrapped this up in the day, but, you know, they, they took me off the cross early and I didn't finish it, but now I'm still working on it. No, no. Uh, Christ's present intercession is not a continuance in Christ accomplishing his work. What I would suggest to you is that Christ's present intercession is the ongoing faithful continuance of how he applies his completed work for, for his believing people. I know I'm being technically nitpicky there, but that's, that's my job as a theolog theological nerd, to be nitpicky on certain things. When Jesus hung on the cross, you know what he said. Right before he died, he said, it is finished. I, he, he's done everything he needs to do so that sinners like you and I could live in right relationship with God. He's rendered a life of perfect obedience, and now he's rendered a life of perfect sacrifice, and God raised him from the dead. And, and, and now that completed work at the cross is continually applied to us. And guess who's applying it to us? Jesus is pleading our case. Even even as we're sitting here, he's sitting at the Father's right hand, taking the perfections and the righteousness and the obedience and the sacrifice and the shed blood of his own self, and he's applying the benefits of that to his believing people. Yeah. 
I mean, it dovetails. You're like, I don't know if I have the strength to keep going. Even in this strength that Jesus supplies me. Well, you don't. But Jesus is right there, continually pleading for you this morning. Father, the victory that I've won at the cross, the strength that I've displayed at the cross, Father, I've given it to my people. I've shared the spoils of that victory with my people. And Father, keep supplying it to my people. So even when you and I don't think we have the strength, and, 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 but that there's Jesus pleading our case before the Father. When we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. When, when we waver, he is unwavering. When we wander off, he stays in place. He's at his post, pleading for his people. So do you think you'll ever get home? Well, it depends on if it's up to you or not. It depends on if it's up to me or not. It's not up to you and me. You will get home insofar as Jesus stays at the Father's right hand, interceding for you and I to safely get home. Paul writes in Romans 8, who is to condemn? You know, we could find charges to condemn you with this morning. You could find charges, you don't have to look hard, to condemn me this morning. So Paul knows that when he says, who is to condemn? And what does he do? He doesn't run to you. He doesn't defend you. He doesn't defend himself. He declares Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So bring those charges against us. I have an advocate who's pleading my case this morning. Jesus the risen one at the Father's right hand who is saying, oh, Father, I have paid for that penalty. There is no double indemnity here. I have paid for that penalty. I have taken upon myself the curse of that sin. I have bore up under the condemnation of that sin. It is paid for. That's how you and I get home. And that's how you and I have a constant supply of strength. Because the strong one who shares his spoils is also the one who is interceding for us. So I wonder if Jesus is available to you this morning. I wonder if he's like gotten distracted and forgotten about you this morning. Failed to intercede for you this morning. That's an impossibility. Jesus is available. Jesus is present. Jesus is interceding. And what the writer of Hebrews tells us is that he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. In other words, all the way to the very end, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always, not occasionally, not sometimes, not intermittently, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Turn to this Jesus. Draw near to this Jesus. 
who right now is naming your name before the Father. Father, thank you for Jesus and for what he has done for people like us. Father, we would have no basis to be in right relationship with you as our God. We would have no strength to take one spiritual step forward. We would have no one in our corner, but we have Jesus, who has declared us righteous with his own righteousness, who has become the victor, uh, who has shared his spoils of strength with us, and who now lives to pray for us. We feel hopeful this morning. We feel confident, not in ourselves, but in Jesus. And so we praise the Lord Jesus, for we pray this in his name.